Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 65 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il. And it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you. Thank you so much for listening and for sending in your questions and suggestions. And speaking of which, if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delvingintoislam at gmail.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible, inshallah. Uh, now, this podcast is for everyone, whether you are remotely curious about the religion of Islam, or if you are studying Islam, or if you are thinking about becoming a Muslim, or if you just became a Muslim, or if you are already a Muslim who wants to learn more about the religion of Islam, this podcast is for you, inshallah. With that being said, let's get right into today's topic. And today's topic, uh, it, we're continuing uh, you know, the story and the biography of the Prophet wasallam. And uh, we are learning, you know, uh, again, we, we, we learned about the first mosque that was built, you know, the first call for prayers and all these things. So today we will learn about the first constitution ever to be created or to be, you know, put in place. Before the constitution that the Prophet ﷺ had put to the people of Medina, there was no such thing as a constitution. Now, the reason why is because Medina now has, uh, uh, you know, groups. It's divided into groups. It's like the United States, for example, right? The U.S. We have, you know, uh, different uh, different states, and every state has its own laws and all these things. And that's exactly how it was back then. There were multiple groups. You know, you, you had the Muslims, you had the Jewish tribes, you had the, the the pagans. Actually, there were pagans that were, of course, allowed to live there. And each of them had their own rules, right? They had their own, uh, you know, rituals, laws, whatever. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to be fair to everyone by, you know, writing this treaty, writing this constitution that basically gave every group their rights, you know, among you know amongst each other, and also. Uh, you know, in terms of like a whole, uh, you know, Medina as a whole. So like, you know, any, every group will have the rights to do certain things within themselves, right? To, to apply certain laws, certain things that, you know, apply on them as a group. But also they have to abide by the general, you know, uh, laws and the general rulings, you know, that apply on all of Medina, exactly like the United States uh, of America, where, you know, you have every... Every state has its own laws, but then ultimately there are laws that, you know, have to uh, be applied on all states, no matter, you know, what their laws are. So the, the first thing, the first, the first uh, section of that treaty or the first section of that constitution was between Muslims among themselves. Now, there are certain, you know, like we said, certain laws. So, for example, the first thing in, in that section was... The believers from Quraysh and Medina, meaning the Muhajirun and the Ansar, right? The immigrants and the supporters. And anyone else who wants to join Islam will be one nation. Ummatan wahidatan. Umma in Arabic means nation. So all Muslims, no matter where they're from, no matter what their skin colors are, no matter, you know, their backgrounds, no matter what, what their families are from, they are one nation. And this rule applies until today. You know, today, when you go to the mosque, when you go to the masjid, doesn't matter your skin color, doesn't matter 
what you do for a living. Of course, some you know cultural things happen. You know uh, uh, when um, you know some cultures prefer other cultures and all these things, and which is still a type of tribalism. But we're talking about the Islamic ruling here. We're all the same. Everyone is the same. We're all one nation. What unites us is Islam, the religion of Islam. So that's number one. Number two, every tribe is responsible to take care of its people. Now, every tribe, because again, Muslims were tribes, right? So every tribe were responsible to take care of uh, their people. One of them is in need of money, for example. They should take care of them. You know, their tribe is obligated to help their people. Every tribe is obligated to help their people. Also, all Muslims, now we're talking about all tribes of Muslims, should unite against those who commit injustice, even if those who commit injustice were Muslims. Again, all Muslims should unite against those who commit injustice, and including the Muslims themselves. If, if Muslims commit injustice, if they do crimes, it does not matter that they're Muslims. All other Muslims should unite against them. And that's, again, it shows you the ultimate justice in the system of the constitution of Medina. Now, number four, if one Muslim, even if they were slaves, grants protection to anyone, then the rest of the Muslims should respect that protection. You know, some, someone might come seeking protection from a Muslim. Doesn't matter who the Muslim is. A Muslim who, of course, lives in Medina. So that Muslim, if, if, that Muslim, if that Muslim decides to grant that outsider protection, all Muslims should respect it. Now, the second section is regarding the Jews in Medina, the Jewish tribes in Medina. So our Prophet ﷺ called the Jewish tribes as a one nation alongside the Muslim nation. Now, we have to understand that what separated those groups was faith. Right, their belief in Allah subhanahu wa taala, or not, or believe, you know, being people of the book, or being pagans, or being Muslims. So every group was defined by their religion. So the Prophet ﷺ called the Jewish tribes as a one nation alongside the Muslim nation, which is a high praise, right? Now, they also the Prophet ﷺ said that they all shall. Uh, by the way, just before we, you know, continue on with the, with with the actual uh, clause from the Constitution. We need to understand that these rules were not made up by the Prophet ﷺ. We already mentioned that before. Everything that the Prophet ﷺ says and constitutes is coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to understand this, right? So these were direct commands from Allah and or are permitted and allowed by Allah or agreed upon by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, uh, the, the second point in, in, in that treaty with, with the Jewish tribes was that they shall take care of their own affairs without interference from the Muslims. Again, ultimate freedom. Ultimate freedom among themselves. Ultimate freedom. You can do whatever you want, apply your laws, and we're not going to interfere. Because you have to understand, now, Muslims are the highest authority in Medina by now. The Muslims are the highest authority in Medina by now. So if they were, you know, uh, wanted to commit injustice or they were oppressors, they could have easily said, yeah, we're, we're going to get involved. Yeah, we, we, you know, you have to come to us for everything. But that's not how it worked. The Prophet ﷺ gave them the ultimate freedom to do, to take care of their own affairs, you know, among themselves. Now, if they come and ask Muslims to help with their affairs, Muslims will do so. 
Otherwise, Muslims will not interfere. Number three, the Muslims and the Jews shall unite and support each other against any foreign slash external enemy. So if there's any foreign or an external enemy coming to attack Medina, coming to attack Muslims, or coming to attack the Jews, Muslims and the Jews should unite against that enemy. And that, of course, would, will, will cause problems uh, uh, down the line because the Jews will actually break that treaty when they will actually help the enemies uh, of the Muslims try to you know, uh, uh, beat the Muslims and go uh, into Medina. And we'll talk about that in detail later on. But yeah, number five, uh, or number four, I think. If any Jewish person wants to, go to convert to Islam, they shall be helped and protected. Basically, no one is going to be prevented from becoming a Muslim, uh, you know, coming from the Jewish tribes. Number five, they were given total independence in terms of like purchasing, transactions, laws, like we said, every total independence from, you know, the Muslim government, if you want to say. So that's the second section. The third section is regarding the pagans of Medina. Now, the hypocrites, remember we talked about the hypocrites and we said that the hypocrites were people who pretended to be Muslims, but they didn't have any belief. They were not Muslims and they try to, you know, uh, sabotage uh, Medina and sabotage the Islamic government from within, right? Um, so the hypocrites of Medina were actually pagans who did not convert in the beginning of, of, of you know, uh, of Islam in Medina. And then they realized that they were minority. That's the origins, basically, of the hypocrites. They realized that they were minority, so they pretended to be Muslims after the Battle of Badr. So before the Battle of Badr, we're talking about the Battle of Badr. Actually, it's coming really soon. Probably maybe next time or maybe the time after, the, the episode after. That basically, again, there was a, the, the first major battle that took place between the Muslims and the pagans of Quraysh. Before that battle, this group of hypocrites, they're not called hypocrites yet because they were technically pagans in Medina, right? They were like, okay, the Muslims will lose, they will die, and then we're going to get back to our you know, daily lives. But then when the Muslims won, they were like, oh, wait a second. Now we're minorities. A lot of people are you know, converting. Muslims are being victorious uh, you know, against their enemies. So let's pretend that we are Muslims and still do what we want to do. Right? And take Islam from within, basically. You know, take down Islam from within. And that was their plan. And of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ruined their plans multiple times. And again, like I said before, they have a full chapter. And they mentioned a lot in the Quran, but they have a full chapter, you know, which is named uh, the hypocrites, uh, you know, after them that describes them and describes their behaviors and, you know, the stuff that they were actually hiding from inside. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course, sees and hears everything and knows what's inside of you. Number two, no pagans. So we talked about the hypocrites. Now that was a side note. So number one, uh, in terms of like the, the constitution, no pagan shall support the people of Quraysh against the Muslims. So basically, you want to stay as a pagan in Medina, go ahead, no problem. No one, there is no compulsion in the religion. Islam never forced people to become Muslims. Never. And this is the biggest proof, right? You want to remain a, as a pagan, go ahead. But you cannot help other pagans from outside of Medina to come and attack Muslims or, you know, help them against Muslims, period. You cannot do that. Second, they did not need to convert. All they had to do is to not take sides. Can you believe this? This is like the best, you know, uh, uh, options they have. You don't want to convert? No problem. Nobody's going to force you. All we need from you 
is to not take sides. When things happen, you know, with 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 the pagans from outside of Medina, if there is any war, any battles, anything, do not take sides. Do not try to sabotage from the inside. Of course, they did the opposite, and that's exactly what they were trying to do, which is you know sabotage Islam from within Medina. Um. Uh, now, number three, uh, and that applies on all of them, by the way. Uh, any conflict between Muslims, Jews, and pagans of Medina shall be resolved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the messenger, through Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Again, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu is not going to take sides. When it comes to ruling, if a Muslim committed injustice against a non-Muslim, the Prophet sallallahu will call him out or call her out, and there will be court held, right? We all know that. Uh, also, Again, as a general ruling, no matter which group you're from, if you committed injustice, and that's exactly what I'm saying, towards any other group, you will be judged and punished accordingly. That's it. And no one is allowed to shelter that criminal. That's basically the Constitution. It's very clear. There's no, you know... uh, there is no ambiguity in it. It's very clear, crystal clear, actually, you know. And this treaty, and here's the interesting part, breaks the old traditions of tribalism. Tribalism is where you're from is who you are. You know, the idea that you are you, who your father was, right, is now you are who you choose to be. You want to become a Muslim? Become a Muslim. You don't want to become a Muslim? It's fine. But the old ways, your father, your ancestors, they do not define who you are. You define who you are. And this is, of course, the Islamic way. And, of course, this is the modern way right now. Right? Like people who keep claiming, oh, who are you the son of? What family branch are you from? Or what kind of, you know, what's the name of your family? It's kind of ridiculous now. You are who you define yourself to be. You are who you are you're not who your father were, or uh, you're not who you are. Who you are? You're not who you know your father was. You're not who your grandfather was. It does not really matter. You choose your own path. You do not follow the path of your ancestors. You know, unless it was a great path and it was you know uh, a righteous path, then of course go ahead. But you choose your own path. And this treaty, this constitution, clearly, you know, clearly states that. Also, this constitution shows, like I said before, that there was no compulsion in the religion. Nobody was forced to become a Muslim. Again, we said that the Muslims were the highest, most powerful authority in Medina by now. If they wanted to enforce people, Jewish people, and pagans in Medina to become Muslims, they would have done so. They would have done so, or kicked him out, or simply kicked him out. But that's not how it worked. That's not how it happened, because at the end of the day, no compulsion in the religion. Allah mentions that in the Quran, and we totally, as Muslims, believe in that as well. Also, the coexistence between Muslims and non-Muslims, you know, was occurring during that time. It was very obvious, right? These laws were made to preserve the rights of every group, whether you're Muslim or not. And that actually shows that Islam is a tolerant religion. Now, here's the part about tolerant and intolerant, right? I want to talk. I actually wanted to talk about this a while ago. So Muslims are intolerant to the idea of disbelieving in Allah. Wait for it. Hear me out. But Muslims 
are tolerant to the people who disbelieve in Allah. You see the big difference here. Muslims are intolerant of the idea of disbelief. We cannot, you know, uh, think that this is normal. We cannot be okay with it. You know, uh, disbelieving in Allah is is a major, major sin. You know that leads to you know eternity in hellfire, and it's it just something that doesn't sit well with us. The idea of it, but the people who practice it, we have to be tolerant towards them, and that's the biggest proof right there. Again, because accepting that it's okay for people not to worship Allah meaning means that you don't have this jealousy when it comes to the religion. You know, it means that you're you're okay with people who are worshiping anything else but Allah. And that shouldn't be the attitude of a believer. But also the attitude of a believer is to be tolerant towards people. Unless they're intolerant with you and this is, you know, a different issue, you know, like if if you're being harassed by any Anybody, even including Muslims, right? Uh, whether you you know can take it or you can you know tolerate it, this is this is totally different topic. I'm talking about not because someone is not Muslim is a non-Muslim that that means automatically a, a, a believer should be intolerant to them. Actually, this is the opposite of the religion of Islam. The religion of Islam tells you, yes, the idea of this belief is disgusting. It's it's unacceptable by us, but the people. As long as they're okay with you, they don't even have to be good to you. As long as they're okay, they're normal people in their dealings. You have to be very tolerant in your dealing, and do not judge them. Again, based on they have the wrong idea, they may be misguided. They may be, you know, if you want to talk to them about it, go ahead. If you don't want to talk to them about it, it's it's your you know your choice. But you cannot hate people. You cannot hate people because they're simply not Muslims. That, that's not in our books in any way, shape, or form. When you deal with people, you deal with them in terms of like with tolerance. But the idea of you know disbelieving in Allah, yeah, you don't. You, we can't accept it as Muslims. It's really that simple, you know. Here's what non-Muslims, certain you know, Islamophobes accuse Islam of that we are intolerant. Period towards non-Muslims. This is wrong. This is completely inaccurate. This is completely wrong. And this proves it right there. In fact, you know what? Fact is, the Western nations are well known with their religious intolerance towards non-Christian religions. Like, for example, back in the day, you know, and some actually even exist today, like if, you know, uh, i.e. France. Look up what France is doing with the Muslims. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Constantine versus Arius. In the medieval times, the Roman Catholic Church killed millions of people. And this is, by the way, recorded in history. I'm not making that up. You can look it up, right? Who were fellow Christians, but they were a different type of Christianity, right? They were like the Jew, uh, the Jew Christian, basically, which is the closest uh, version to the true Christianity. Um, the founding fathers, another example, came to America because they were fleeing religious persecution by fellow Christians in Europe, right? So when, when you look at the Islamic history, you'll find that Muslims were completely tolerant towards non-Muslims in terms of dealings. They were. But we do not accept the idea of disbelief, but this is different. The idea itself of disbelief, we don't accept it, but we have to tolerate non-Muslims. That's why there was a coexistence between Muslims and non-Muslims during the time of the Prophet ﷺ himself. But the opposite, you can, you know, you can literally prove the opposite when it comes to Western, you know, uh, Christians and Western. We're not saying all Western 
uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, authorities. And but back in the day, that was obvious. And even until today, you know, in, in Sweden and, and, and in France and other a lot of other places, uh, you know, all over the world, there are very intolerant, especially towards Muslims, which is very interesting. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help our brothers and sisters uh, everywhere who are being persecuted for being uh, Muslims. Um, also, another interesting point, which is the bond of religion is way stronger than the bond of race or ethnicity. It's literally a very powerful unity. Like, for example, let me ask you a question. What is common between Americans? Us Americans here. What is common between us? Language? No. Ethnicity? No. Religion? No. Skin color? No. What is it? Barely nothing. The idea of us being American, but that's basically it. It's, it's what makes us Americans. What's common between us being Americans? Nothing. But being one Islamic nation makes us have so much in common. We worship the same God. We pray the same way. We do this. There's so much in common when you talk. And guess what? Doesn't matter where you're from. We have so much in common as just being Muslims. So again, the constitution, this was literally the first constitution ever made in that way. The first constitution ever made in that way. And subhanAllah, it shows you, you know, the advancement of the Muslims even back then. Even back then. SubhanAllah. Now let's move on to another issue, which is the change of the qibla. Now, for those of you who do not know, the qibla is where Muslims, you know, uh, face when we're praying. Right now, we're, we're facing Mecca, right? We face the Kaaba, we face Mecca. So the Qibla is literally the direction where we face, which is northeast, by the way. If you pull up your compass anywhere you are, just always face uh, northeast. And this will be the direction of Mecca, you know, the direction of uh, the Kaaba. Now, uh, you have to understand that uh, when, when, you know, Muslims were first supposed to pray, uh, the, 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 the Qibla was Jerusalem. Again, Muslims had to face Jerusalem to pray, right? And it took 16 months after the emigration for the Qibla to be changed. And we'll talk about what caused that. And also, it is significant in terms of like, this was the first time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abrogates a ruling in the Quran. Now, what is abrogation? Abrogation is basically when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a law in the Quran or even in a sunnah. Then later on, later on, in the Quran or the sunnah, Allah reveals another law that cancels that first law. That's literally what abrogation means. Allah reveals something, a law, a command. Then later on, for any reason, for his own wisdom sometimes or for, for certain obvious reasons, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals Another law that cancels that law that was first revealed. That's what abrogation you know, means. Now, abrogation can also be Quran abrogating Quran. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could reveal a verse in the Quran and then abrogates it later on also in the Quran. And also it can be Quran abrogating sunnah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals something in a hadith. Because remember we mentioned what? Hadith comes from Allah. It does not come from the Prophet ﷺ, right? Hadith, 100% authentic hadith, of course, comes from Allah. All the rulings in a hadith, everything comes from Allah, 100%. The wording 
is left to the Prophet So the Prophet says it in his own way, but it comes from Allah. So Quran abrogates the Sunnah or abrogates Hadith. This is the second way of abrogation. Also, the Sunnah could abrogate the Quran, vice versa. So a Hadith could be revealed that abrogates certain things in the Quran. And this happened actually. And finally, you have Sunnah abrogating Sunnah. A Hadith abrogating another Hadith. This happened too. All of these scenarios took place for very good you know, reasons. Now, like we said, the Prophet ﷺ was, you know, commanded in the beginning to uh, pray towards Jerusalem. And, and that was revealed in a hadith, authentic hadith, of course. And even though the Prophet ﷺ was praying in Mecca, he used to literally, when he was facing, you know, Jerusalem, he used to pray in that one side of the Kaaba that would put the Kaaba in front of him when he's facing Jerusalem. Now, let's think about that. Now, the Prophet ﷺ is praying next to the Kaaba. And he's facing Jerusalem. So he will move into the side of the Kaaba where he puts the Kaaba between him and Jerusalem. So basically he's double has double Qibla. He's facing because he loved the Kaaba so much. Because guess what? This was the first Qibla, by the way. The first Qibla ever to be put on this earth was the Kaaba. You know? The times of Ibrahim, السلام, the times of Adam, everything. The Qibla, the first Qibla to be revealed was the Kaaba. And the Prophet ﷺ had a very special love for Mecca and for the Kaaba. So he'd always, you know, pray towards Jerusalem, but he would go probably like behind the Kaaba in a certain way to put the Kaaba in front of him while he was facing Jerusalem while praying. Also, when the Muslims emigrated to Medina, Qibla was still Jerusalem. So the Qibla was still, you know, uh, looking at Jerusalem. But because Medina was north of Mecca, now when the Muslims, you know, pray towards Jerusalem, they have to give their backs to Kaaba, to, the, to Mecca, basically. Again, before the Prophet ﷺ used to put the Kaaba in front of him while he's praying towards Jerusalem. Now, because Medina is, you know, uh, north of Mecca, when the Muslims used to pray and face Jerusalem, they have to give their backs to Mecca. So basically, it's the opposite. Now, after a while, tension started to rise between Muslims and the Jews because the Jews basically started mocking and ridiculing the Muslim community there. You know, they were just mocking them. They were making fun of them because, again, they always thought they were better. And even though they predicted the coming of the final prophet, they, because of arrogance, they did not want to follow. They did not want to believe in him, even though they knew 100%. They know him. The Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that the Jews knew that the Prophet was the true prophet of Allah as they know their own children. You know, you can identify a child, you know, you know in the crowd, no matter what, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us an example. They know he is the prophet of Allah, yet they chose to reject. And tensions were rising because they started, you know, mocking the Muslims, ridiculing them. It actually made fun of the Muslims for, for, for the Muslims facing Jerusalem. They were like, hey, so your guys are following us now, huh? That's good. Okay. Something like that. You know? You guys are, you know, and by the way, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and here's a, a very sad reality. 
the Prophet was very happy that he was going to live among uh, Jewish tribes because he thought, okay, they are the people of the book, so they have an idea who Allah is, who God is, so it will be easier for them to understand the message and to follow, right? There's no way they're going to reject. They have a religious intellect. There is no way, you know, their religion comes from Allah. There's no way they're going to reject. And of course, they did reject. And even worse, they started mocking the Prophet and defying the Muslims, uh, period. Now, um, so at first, the Prophet wanted the Muslims to unite with the people of the book, to do everything they do, you know, follow their footsteps. And But then when obviously they made up their minds and rejected, you know, Islam and the Prophet himself, right? They started getting arrogant and mocking the Muslims for following their footsteps, for, you know, being with them, trying to be with them. You know, they started mocking the Muslims for praying towards Jerusalem. They started mocking the Muslims, you know, for trying to be like them. And that led the Prophet ﷺ by command of Allah or by permission of Allah to change his ruling to be different from the people of the book. Now, for those of you who do not know, there's so many hadith that the Prophet ﷺ tells us, be different from the people of the book. Be different from Christians and Jews. Do not be like them. Even when it comes to, you know, the beard. That's why shave a little bit of your mustache when you grow your beard because you don't want to be fully like the people of the book, you know, like the rabbis or, or, or the Jews who, you know, grow their beards. Why? Because of that situation. They were mocking the Muslims for being like them, for trying to be like them because the Prophet commanded them in the, you know, at first to, to do so. For, you know, praying in the same qibla, same, same direction, they were mocked. And humiliated for doing so. So the Prophet ﷺ felt so sad, so hurt that Allah allowed him to change that ruling to Khalifu al-Yahudu al-Nasara. Be different from the people of the book. You know? So one of the examples, you know, uh, of, of that ruling is that the Jews, for example, do not pray with their shoes on. No matter what happens, they have to take off their shoes. So Muslims now can pray with their shoes on, of course, outdoors. You don't don't pray with your shoes on inside the mosque because you're gonna make it, uh, you know, dirty and people put their heads. Uh, by the way, just 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 a, a little bit of a tangent, but it's a quick one. Uh, some people think that Muslims uh, take off their shoes in a mosque because it's a religious thing, like it's part of the ritual of praying. No, actually, that's not true. We only take our shoes uh, off inside the mosque because we don't want to make the mosque that the carpet dirty you know we do not make the carpet dirty because people put their heads on that carpet right when they're prostrate so that's why we take off our shoes and the biggest you know proof is that outdoors it's recommended to pray with your shoes as long as of course you have wudu you know you have ablution and you're you know you're, you're clean uh you are actually recommended that you pray with your shoes on so that's one of the differences that prophet Salam told us to do and alhamdulillah, we do it until this day. And if you guys don't do it, uh, this is, you know, this is an information for you to do so. Now, <clears throat> one of those things also, another example, which is, you know, our topic now, which is the change of the Qibla. Since the Jews made fun of the Muslims for praying towards Jerusalem, the Prophet ﷺ felt so hurt, you know, and felt so bad. He always loved and wanted to pray towards Mecca. But this even made it worse now. Right? So, uh, uh, one time, 
uh, Jibreel came down with, you know, uh, verses from the Quran. and He always comes down to the Prophet ﷺ with revelation, right? And then the Prophet ﷺ expressed his hope in terms of changing the Qibla. And to that, Jibreel said, um, I'm only a, a servant like you. I can't, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't go ask Allah for that. Uh, I can't do anything about it. And subhanAllah, that shows you for those who, you know, uh, follow the Trinity. And they put Jibreel, which is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, whatever you want to call it, in a divine status. Jibreel is literally sitting with the Prophet Sallallahu and telling him, I'm helpless, I can't help you. Allah can, can do this, I can't. I can't even go ask him. I can't even go ask him. You make the dua, right? And ask Allah to change the qibla. And if Allah wills, it will be changed. That shows you for those who think that you know, Jibreel, Angel Jibreel, Angel Gabriel is to be worshipped. That doesn't make sense. It does not make sense, right? Now, uh, uh, so the Prophet actually listened to, to, to Angel Jibreel and he started making dua day and night. Supplication, supplication, making dua. He really wanted this to elevate the Muslims from humiliation to honor, to have their own qibla. And he also loved Mecca, right? And here's a little bit, and, and, and actually I want to, because uh, uh, I, I remember uh, I have a, a, our dear listener, Rowan, who asked me to talk a little bit about the etiquettes of, of making dua, of, of you know supplication. And uh, I'm going to just go a little bit on a tangent, still re- relatable, uh, to explain you know the etiquettes of uh, making dua. So usually when we make dua, in terms of movement, if, number one, you have to make sure that Believe in your heart that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you what's best. If what you want is good for you, you have to be sure that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give it to you. No doubt here. You cannot doubt that. You cannot doubt that. You, ha- you have to, Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says what? Ana dhanna abdi bi. I will be to my slave how he thinks of me. If he thinks I'm not going to give him what he wants or she wants, I'm not going to give it to them. If they think that I will, then I will give it to them if it's good for them. Right? So that's the number one mentality that you have to, you know, go in making before you make the dua. Is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give me what I want if it's good for me. And if Allah doesn't give it to me now, he might give it to me later. Maybe, I'm, you know, Allah will test my patience. Or maybe it's bad for me, so Allah is not going to give it to me, or Allah will give me something even better in this life, or the afterlife, or in both. Again, this is the mentality of you making dua. I'm going to make dua because I want something. Remember, we keep saying this. You might want something, but it's evil for you. So you're going to make dua and ask Allah, Allah, if it's good for me, give it to me. And if it's not, don't give it to me, but give me something even better. You have to believe that this is how it's going to happen. Right? Be sincere. That's number one. Number two. When you are making dua, you can make dua anywhere. You can make dua anywhere. Right? You can make it while you're on your couch or you're on your bed or you're walking in the street, or you do whatever you're eating. You make dua anywhere. One of the beautiful things about the religion of Islam is that you can literally ask Allah for anything, anytime. But the best position the best timing to make the dua the best timing that allah likes you to make the dua 
like we said, any any other time is fine. Any other place is fine. Of course, don't do it in in the bathroom because it's not uh, it's a filthy place, right? But the best time and the best position is when you're prostrating during prayers. When you're doing sujood dur- during prayers and you're saying Subhana Rabbi al-A'la, Subhana Rabbi al-A'la, Subhana Rabbi al-A'la. This is the best position that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept. Now again, that doesn't mean Allah won't accept it any other time. But we're saying this is the most, you know, like this is the ideal situation and the ideal position and the ideal timing of making dua. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says when you put your head which is your your most honorable part of your body your head your forehead when you put it on the floor in the lowest spot on the floor for my sake you are the closest to me we are the closest to Allah when we're doing sujood when we're prostrating because we're putting our foreheads on the floor to get close to Allah and guess what when you are the closest to Allah isn't that the best time to make dua and to ask him for stuff think about it when you are the closest, physically by the way, and spiritually as well. Wouldn't that make sense when you are the closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The best way to make dua is when you are the closest to Allah. So that's exactly the most ideal you know, uh, situation where you can make uh, the dua in. Now, when we're making dua, because uh, I see a lot of people make that mistake, they, they lift their hands up. No, open your palms and make your palms facing up. So open your palms flat and make them face up. The Prophet ﷺ said in an authentic hadith, do not make dua to Allah from the back of your hands. Making your palms facing your faces, right? When you're making dua, when you open your palms and making it face your faces, or even worse, you make it with, 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 a, with an angle that the back of your hands are facing up. That's not how you're supposed to make dua, by the way. The Prophet says, Do not make dua to Allah from the back of your hands. Open your palms and make your palms facing up, facing Allah when you're making the dua. Right? So that's the ideal way if you're not prostrating, of course. You know, opening your hands, uh, your palms, of course, that's not prostrating. The best way is prostrating, but if you want to do it, if you because again, sometimes we'll be on the road. And we thought of something and we want to make dua right away. Then do that. Open your palms and ask Allah. Put your eyes uh, down out of you know humiliation and respect and make that dua. Now, another thing is, and, and by the way, again, you could be driving. What if you're driving and your hand's on the wheel, right? And you want to make a dua. You don't have to put your hands up. Make the dua without you know opening your palms. Anything goes. Make the dua in your seat. You don't even have to say it out loud if you can't. But we're telling you what's the ideal, you know, the most and the best ways to make dua, right? Also, in the time, and this is how the Prophet actually made this dua, specific dua regarding the qibla. The Prophet actually lifted his arms up and looked up at the sky. Remember we said you're supposed to look down. But this is a sign of a great distress it's a sign of urgency and desperation when it comes to that dua. Like it, the Prophet ﷺ was so desperate to change the qibla that he lifted both arms up, you know, palms still facing up uh, as well, and looking up the sky, asking Allah, Oh Allah, please allow me to change the qibla. And this only happens when, when you're really in, in great desperation, whatever the situation you're in, you know, it's, it's really bad and all these things, right? Also, from the etiquettes of making dua, do not make dua against another Muslim. 
unless they committed great injustice towards you knowingly. So if another Muslim committed injustice towards you, you know, was unfair to you knowingly, you're allowed to make dua against him. Otherwise, if you're not sure if you're making dua for, you know, uh, against the Muslim for you think because you think they're bad people or they didn't do anything to you in terms of injustice, angels respond back and say, and you shall have the same. Meaning, do not say something bad about any Muslim and make dua against them because you might get the same dua reversed on you. Now, one of the now one of the greatest duas you can ever make is, the, of course, there's plenty of duas that you can make. But one of the greatest ones that if you are in distress or if you're in a bad situation and you want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in general, right? And you want Allah subhanahu, you want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help you with that situation, the dua of Jonah, Prophet Yunus, that he made in the belly of the whale. When he was, you know, in the belly of the whale. Allahumma la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-zalimin. Oh Allah, you're the only Allah, you're the only God, you're the only Lord. Allahumma la ilaha illa ant. Subhanak, all praise and glory be to you. You have to glorify Allah in the beginning. This is the, it's a very short dua. Allahumma la ilaha illa ant. Subhanak, inni kuntu min al-zalimin. Oh Allah, you're the only God. You're the only Lord to be worshipped. And all glory and blessings be to you. I was from the transgressors. I transgressed against myself, against people, against whoever. You just say, I committed injustice. Inni kuntu Valim here is the person who committed injustice or trans- transgressed. I committed injustice. I transgressed. That's it. Now, some of you might be like, where is the dua then? <laughs> What is what is this? You didn't even ask Allah to lift whatever the problem, you know, or the issue that you're facing. What are you talking about? Don't forget Allah knows your intention when you're making the dua. Allah knows exactly what you want. That dua in itself, there is no dua in it if you think about it, but it is a dua. So, Prophet Yunus, Prophet Jonah, when he was in the belly of the whale, he said, Allahumma la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-zalimeen. Oh Allah, you're the only God. All glory and 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 blessings be to you. I was from those who committed injustice. I was from those who transgressed. That's it. Admitting your shortcomings, admitting your mistakes, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala automatically knows what's in your heart. He automatically knows what you want to happen, and He will, inshallah give it to you. Now let's get back to our. So that was a brief. You know, uh, a summary of the etiquettes of making dua. I hope, you know, Rowan, I hope you're uh, listening to this and I hope that answers uh, your question. If not, please let me know uh, so I can, you know, make uh, more of an exp- uh, explanation for it. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded to the Prophet sallallahu in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in the chapter of Baqarah. He responded when the Prophet kept making dua, kept making dua. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded in the Quran. And what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? قَدْ تَقَلُّبَ وَجْهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ I see that you're distressed. I see that. Allah is saying to the Prophet I'm going to give you qibla that will make you satisfied. So Allah is telling, is, is answering the dua straight up. I will give you, I see that you're in distress. I understand your situation, and I will give you a qibla that you will be pleased with. Tardaha. 
فَوَلِّ وَجْهَكَ شَطْرَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ Okay, now the Qibla is face the Masjid Al-Haram. By the way, the Masjid Al-Haram is Mecca. Basically, is the Kaaba. That's another word for the Masjid Al-Haram. Right? So basically, from now on, you're going to face Kaaba. You're going to face Mecca. You're going to face Al-Masjid Al-Haram. وَحَيْثَمَا كُنْتُمْ فَوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ شَطْرَ And for the rest of the Muslims, wherever you are, all over the world, from now on, you will face Mecca instead of Jerusalem. So it's basically Allah decreed in this verse in the Quran, in the chapter of Baqarah, verse number 144, that from now on, the Qibla will change from Jerusalem to Mecca. The exact Qibla that the Prophet always wanted. Now, this command, of course, got in, in, in the Quran, got the Jews very annoyed and they felt very disrespected. But of course, what do you expect? You were mocking the Muslims for, you know, following the same Qibla and all these things. So what do you expect? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevated the honor and the status of the Muslims that he given them. The original, by the way, this, this is not a new Qibla. This was the original Qibla. You know, like the times of uh, Abraham and Sayyidina Ibrahim, peace be upon him. This is the original Qibla. The first Qibla ever to be put on earth was Mecca. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala returned it back to the Muslims to elevate their status, you know, from following the people of the book to now they have their own Qibla. Now it's also very interesting to mention that the chapter of Baqarah, this is by the way, the second chapter after the Fatiha, this is the, cha- the second chapter in the Quran, uh, was the first chapter to be revealed in Medina. Some might think it was revealed in, in Mecca, but the Quran, like we said, is not chronological, right? So the, 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 the chapter of Baqarah was actually, it's a Madani. Uh, chapter it's revealed in Medina and that's why it talks a lot about things that happen in the beginning of Islam in Medina and also Allah mentions the history of the Jews and the history of Moses and Pharaohs by the way if you read the chapter of Baqarah the cow it's all talking about the Bani Israel the children of Israel the Jews and Moses and the Pharaoh on all these stories why to teach the Muslims how to deal with the Jews of Medina Basically giving them a background story, you know, they're telling them that the, the history behind the Jewish, you know, uh, tribes and, and all these things. So Muslims know how to deal with them. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains in the chapter of Baqarah also the concept of abrogation in the Quran. Because some people got confused. What is this? Allah told us to pray towards Jerusalem. Now he's telling us to pray uh, towards Mecca. So Allah is contradicting himself. No. And Allah says in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, I abrogate certain verses in the Quran to bring something better, or at least equivalent. For a wisdom, that for, for example, this situation happened, the Prophet had to do the work, had to make dua, so Allah, Allah always knew that this was going to happen, right? We know that Allah knows the future, right? Allah knows everything that's going to happen until beyond the day of judgment, until infinite, right? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to do the work. And because the Prophet did the work, Allah abrogated the verse. Allah did not forget. Allah did not make a mistake in the Quran. No, no. It was just a command that he created. And then he, he made another command that abrogated that you know first command. So simple. So Allah's telling you, whatever the new command is, Either will be better than the first command or at least equivalent because of a wisdom that only I know. And this actually mentioned in 
Also, the chapter of Baqarah, verse number 106, for those of you who, you know, want to verify. So, the Muslims, you know, uh, you know, the day of the change of the Qibla, the Prophet ﷺ prayed Fajr facing Jerusalem, because the, the, the verses were not revealed yet. And then later on, the verses were revealed. So by Dhuhr time, by the noon prayer, the Prophet ﷺ started praying facing Mecca in his own mosque. Facing Mecca. So the same day, Fajr, dawn prayer, was uh, made towards Jerusalem. Verses came down, the Prophet ﷺ changed the Qibla to Mecca. Now here's the interesting situation. Muslims who prayed Dhuhr with the Prophet ﷺ in the masjid, right, facing Mecca, they wanted to inform the rest of the Muslims. Because, by the way, in Medina, there was no just one mosque by the time, right? There was multiple mosques. So people didn't, some people didn't hear about this. And they're still praying towards Jerusalem, right? So basically what they did is they started telling people. And then they sent a companion, you know, to spread the news. And by the time the companion reached the masjid by the name of the masjid of uh, Banu Salama, right? Asr prayer had started and the people already in that masjid started praying towards Jerusalem because they didn't know about the verse, right? They did not know about the verse that was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they already started praying towards uh, Jerusalem. So uh, that companion, when he saw that they started already and it was already too late, so he you know, stood at the, uh, in, in the back of the masjid and he started yelling out loud, telling them basically that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse that basically changed the qibla from Jerusalem to Mecca. So what happened in the middle of, during the salah itself, during the prayer itself, the Muslims uh, turned around. Facing the back. Remember, we said Mecca is in is in the south of Medina, and uh, Jerusalem was in the north of Medina. So they basically went uh, uh, 180 degrees uh, to face the back of the masjid. Now they were facing the front of the masjid. So the Muslims literally, while they're praying, turned around and faced the back of the masjid. And the Imam, the leader of the salah, walked because he has to be in the, in the front, right? So by this new position, he's now in the back. So he walked. You know, uh, uh, amongst them, to uh, and he reached the back of the masjid, which is now the new front of the masjid, and he led the salah normally. I hope you guys can, you know, imagine. It's very simple. Everybody was facing the front of the masjid, you know, facing Jerusalem. When uh, the companion yelled out loud and told them the new ruling and the new command, they all faced the back of the masjid, and then the imam moved from that backside to the front, to the new front, to lead the salah. And since that day, that masjid or that mosque was called the mosque with the two qiblas. Dhul qiblatayn. The masjid or the mosque with the two qiblas because in one prayer, in the Asr prayer, the Muslims were praying in, you know, they prayed towards two qiblas at the same salah, at the same prayer, which was very fascinating. Now, there was a situation, and we're going to end with that inshallah, that happened that actually the scholars derived very interesting thing when it comes to the uh, theology in Islam. Uh, the companions later on asked the Prophet ﷺ if those who prayed towards Jerusalem, the Muslims who prayed towards Jerusalem, and then they died before that command was re- uh, revealed, right? Would their prayer be accepted by Allah? Since Allah now wants us to pray towards you know, uh, Mecca, but what about those who died before they uh, uh, heard of the verse uh, or the command? Would their you know, uh, prayers be accepted? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, revealed in the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not let their faith go to waste. 
meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward them. There's no problem with that because they didn't know. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانُكُمْ Allah would never, would never put your faith to waste. And here's the interesting part. Because of that, because of that verse, many scholars derive the fact that praying at least the five daily prayers is a necessary pillar of becoming a Muslim or of being a Muslim. You have to pray the five daily prayers to actually be a Muslim. Why? Why did they? And again, we're talking about a majority of many scholars. The actually very famous Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, Imam Ahmad, very you know giants when it comes to. And again, we're talking about old scholars. You know, back back in the day, uh, they derived that this is a direct proof, among other proofs, of course, uh, uh, that this is a proof that if you don't pray, you're not a Muslim. You need to pray to be a Muslim. And why did they say that? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said what? Allah would not put their faith to waste. Allah called their praying faith. Allah didn't say, I, 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 I would not waste their praying. Allah said, I would not waste their faith. And Allah called their or belief, however you want to, iman or belief or whatever. It's, it's the same thing. Faith and belief is the same thing. So Allah called them praying is faith. The whole praying part is faith. Or he called it belief, which means if you do not pray, you don't have belief. You disbelieve. You have no faith. You know? And that is a clear sign that if you don't pray, you have no faith. You have no belief. Because Allah called their praying is faith, is belief. Also, and, and to, to, to have more evidence of, of, you know, support the scholars who are saying that, you know, praying is a necessary a required pillar of being a Muslim, is that the Prophet in an authentic hadith says what? Al-farqu baynana, bayna al-muslimi wal-kafir huwa salah. The difference, the main difference between a believer and disbeliever is praying. In the chapter of Mudathir, in the Quran, قَالُوا مَا سَلَكَكُمْ فِي سَقَرْ قَالُوا لَمْ نَكُنُوا مِنَ الْمُصَلِّينَ The angels, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes when the angels see uh, uh, people being uh, punished in hellfire, they will ask them, what brought you here? They will say, we didn't pray when we were alive. That's another proof. Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about the people of hellfire. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that when they were told to prostrate, they did not prostrate. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمُ ارْكَعُوا لَا يَرْكَعُونَ Those who were commanded to prostrate, meaning commanded to pray, they did not pray. He was talking about the people of hellfire. Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says in the Quran, وَأَقِيمُوا Establish the prayer, وَلَا تَكُونُوا مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ Establish prayers and don't be from the disbelievers, from the pagans. Basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling you, if you do not establish prayers, you are from the disbelievers. And authentic hadith, very famous hadith by the Prophet says, again, we said the hadith is revealed by Allah. Don't ever forget that, right? Hadith, uh, authentic hadith that says, whoever abandons salah, whoever abandons praying, has disbelief. If you abandon salah. Now, there's a big difference between if you're struggling with salah, and you're trying so hard, but you know uh, you're you're weak, right? And those who don't want to pray, 
if you abandon salah, if you can pray but you wouldn't pray, right? You have disbelieved. Kafar. The word tarqah, fakat kafar means you disbelieved. So this is again a, a very interesting uh, theological uh, uh, point that is derived from that verse that was talking about those who prayed before the Qibla changed uh, towards Jerusalem and they died uh, before praying towards Mecca. And of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving. Um, and that was basically it. That's the story of changing the Qibla. Thank you so much for listening. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.